The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Right now in fast, no bottom in yet. Morgan Stanley's Mike Wilson says we've got a ways to go before markets start their real comeback. We'll find out just how much more he says we have to drop. And Sour Apple, shares of the tech giant down 5% already this week. The latest headlines that sent shares lower and where the biggest company in the country is going from here. Plus, is it time to dip into chips? The sector beaten down over the past year, but one top analyst has got a few names he thinks are ripe for the picking. We'll find out what they are. And a cyber breakdown, shares of CrowdStrike plunging to more than two-year lows after its latest earnings report. We're digging into those numbers. We'll bring you the trade. I'm Melissa Lee. This is Fast Money. We're live at the Nasdaq market site in the heart of Times Square. On the desk tonight, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Dami, and Steve Grasso. We start off with a choppy session for stocks. The S&P and Nasdaq falling for a third day in a row, while the Dow managed to eke out the slightest of gains at the end of the day. Tech and hardware among the biggest laggards today. And with just one more trading day left in November, the Nasdaq has now gone negative for the month. The deciding factor could be Jerome Powell, the Fed chair delivering a key speech tomorrow on what is ahead for the economy and labor market at the Brookings Institution. So what is at stake for the markets? Are we expecting to say anything much different, Guy? Well, it's interesting. I, I, I don't think if the S&P was trading 3,200, I'd had a much different conversation. But the fact that the market's only down as much as it is on the year, the fact that the bond markets have seemingly stabilized, the fact that the credit markets are intact, that energy prices have come down, that is a backdrop where he can be as hawkish as he wants because he has air cover in the form of all these different asset classes. So I think he's going to be extremely hawkish. The market probably doesn't want to hear that, but the market's given him clearance to do exactly that. Okay, so here's a, here's a question. Oh, here we go. It's not a game. It's, it's, a not, it's a game. Okay. Not every know. question results know. in a game. Good to know. Uh, if he's extremely hawkish, what does the 10-year yield do? Uh, maybe we continue to invert on the curve. So that's all we talk about. Guy's been bringing it up. And if, if you look at the, the dichotomy between the short end and the long end, it's, it's plain as day. And if you look at terminal Fed funds, so we're out in July is really where we expect the Fed to uh, kind of peak at Fed funds. But the 10-year is getting a head start. I, I would say maybe, and I know you asked the questions around here, but maybe the question I would ask is, uh, what is a weak payroll number? What does bad do? Um, because there's a payroll number on Friday. And, and look, people are pointing at this, this Powell uh, meeting tomorrow and his, his speech is going to be the last real Fed public statement we get before that deck meeting. But the data before that deck meeting is really important. This payroll number is really important. The job market's basically within a couple ticks of 50-year tightness. Uh, and I think, you know, I look at the markets overall, and I look at where we are with the VIX at 22, and I look at what the markets have failed to the 200. Uh, I think the market's going to imply Powell is bullish. I think the markets have already made up their minds. 
Yeah, I'd just say this. I, I think he's got to look at that Friday number. I, I think he knows what he is when he's speaking. You and yeah. your conspiracy No, I just think he does. I, I just, Fed has a sneak peek at whatever's coming out. Why wouldn't he? I mean, I'm when Wednesday, you think about this is this is number? this is probably pretty important, especially when you think of the string of, of kind of data that we're going to have in, into that deck meeting. We're going to have CPI, PPI. When you think about how explosive the market's reaction, specifically, well, both stocks and in, in yields, um, after that CPI number, I think he's got to look at it. I also think because a lot of these seasonal things, I think the likelihood that we see unemployment tick up in any way, shape, or form is probably not great. So I think you're going to look at this number and you're going to say it's still. But is that pretty, good news? No. Well, I think you're going to say it's good news for the it's good news for the economy. It's good news for the for, markets for, for the for people with their jobs. I don't know if it's great for 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 the uh, for the markets. You know what I mean? So to me, I think he's got to look at it. I think he probably stays the course. I don't think he surprises tomorrow. Yeah, Grasso. Yeah, he's, he's got to stay the course. He's got to stay extremely hawkish. That's what the market has been telling us the last couple of days. They've been selling off ahead of it. But the market does this rinse and repeat. They sell off ahead of whenever he speaks, and then it rallies afterward. We still have CPI to look forward to. That could be a dovish uh, number. But having said that, the, if, you, if you look at the market, you, you ask what the 10-year does. The 10-year yield probably comes in. The two-year yield trades up higher and you have a more inverted yield curve, but I'm still banking on that year-end rally uh, for people marking their books up. Yeah, Santoli was uh, having his last final word on the overtime just moments ago and said that Powell probably will likely have to address this very steep inversion. You think yes. First question. Why would he deviate from what he has said before? And that is that there is a path towards a soft landing. Yeah, because if I'm a journal, whatever, who's ever in that room at this press conference mm-hmm. that's allowed to ask questions, if I were to be so fortunate, the first mm-hmm. question I ask is, respectfully, Chair Powell, we're seeing a 210 inversion to the tune of 80 basis points we haven't seen since 1981. What do you think that is telling you? What is that telling the markets? And see how he answers. Then he has to answer the question. No. I mean, I guess, I guess so. If you say the markets are pricing in recession, what can you tell market participants about how they are pricing in a recession? I, I think he's going to point out that this isn't going to be easy. I don't think he has to comment on markets until markets are really the story. And, and a, a yield curve inverted, I, I agree, Guy. Someone will ask that question because there's a lot of smart folks that will sit in that room. Um, but it's going to come back to the Fed uh, pointing out where they need to be on medium to long-term inflation expectations. And, mm-hmm. and every Fed governor, every voting member for the last three weeks has said the same thing and that we're not even close. And, and, and close maybe mean duration of, of how long they have to hold the line. Um, and 50 bips, by the way, in, in, in yesterday's Fed was a pretty big move. I realize relative that we've gone 75 for the last few meetings. 50 is still a very significant move. And, and let's wait and see what we get after that. Yeah, yeah, the bond market is pricing in stagflation. The stock market is pricing in a very narrow recession in 2023, down 15% of the year. Right. It's just that simple. So to me, there's a huge divergence between what's going on there and when you think about all of the volatility we've seen across almost every major risk asset and given all the continued uncertainty and still the high expectations for S&P earnings for next year, I just don't think, again, what we're done. We have not priced in all of what we don't know just yet. So to me, I think it's that divergence between what the bond market's saying and what the stock market's saying up 15% from those lows, down 15% of the year. No bueno. Plus what Fed Funds is, I mean, is pricing in for next year. They're still priced, they're still on the notion that there's going to be an actual pivot, that there will actually be cuts next year, Steve Grasso. And it seems to yep. me that Fed officials haven't really tried to talk that notion, you know, talk the markets off of that ledge lately. 
Well, the, every time uh, Powell opens his mouth, he, he will talk extremely hawkish. So he does try to talk the market off of that. But let's remember, though, this is a Fed-made recession. So eventually, when he does pivot, this market should move higher pretty quickly. This is not a, a consumer um, recession. It's a Fed recession. The Fed is doing this. So this is, not, this is no different to me than the pandemic recession, where everything came to a screeching halt. It's a lot slower this time, but this is Fed-driven. Okay. Our next guest sees a lot of two-way risk in the market. Mike Wilson is Morgan Stanley's chief U.S. equity strategist and CIO. Mike, it's always good to see you. Thanks for having me. Uh, two-way risk sounds to like markets up, markets down. <laughs> what do you mean by that? <laughs> well, it's not getting any easier. Okay, let's put it that way. I mean, this has been. I think the first half of this year is, I mean, fairly simple. If you just were bearish and kind of held that position, and then, you know, we've had two major, you know, tactical rallies since June. The first one, and then of course one in October. This one actually has better breath, which is kind of interesting. And so I do think we're closer to the end. I mean, we don't know when the Fed's going to pause. It's, we think it's January. We think they do 50 in December, 25 in January, and that's it. Okay, that's ahead of where the market is. And the market's trying to pre-trade that, kind of like it did this summer. Now, we thought it was premature this summer to get in front of that. This time, we actually think there's validity to that. The question is, what are you going to pay for this thing if you think earnings are going to be really disappointing next year, which is our core view? So, you know, we're trying to have our cake and eat it, too. We like to do that, right? So we're, we're having a tactical rally now. I kind of agree with Steve. We're, we're, we probably got some you know, upward bias into year end. But ultimately, the bear market's not over, and we got significantly lower lows if our earnings forecast is correct. Yeah, so 2023, your price targets are out. 3,600 is your bear case, 3,900 right. is the base, and 4,200 is the bull case. What's the rate expectation backdrop to these cases? Yeah, so I mean, it's probably somewhere between 275.3 if it's a recession to, you know, maybe four and a quarter if there's a reacceleration in the back half of the year. I'd probably split the difference. I'd probably say it's three and a quarter, you know, something like that. I, I, look, to me, it's not about the year end targets, it's about the path. All right. I mean, nobody cares about what's going to happen in 12 months. They, they need to deal with the next three to six months. And that's where we actually think there's significant downside. So while 3,900 sounds like, oh, that sounds like a really boring uh, six month. No, this is going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a wild ride. <laughs> and there's going to be lots to do. You know, the good, I say the best thing I can say is, hey, the breast's getting better. You know, the average stock is doing better than the index. And there's going to be probably stock opportunities going forward as opposed to just trading the index. I think it was October 14th on a Friday is when you came out tactically yeah. bullish, 15% rally. It's exactly what happened. I mean, it's exa- so you nailed that. But 3,600 as a bear case does not seem catastrophic to me, given the backdrop that we've talked about for a while. So I guess what are your earnings number and then what multiple putting on the back of that? Yeah, but remember, 3,600 is year end mm-hmm. 2023. So our bear case path is 3,000. Mm-hmm. So and, and look, the, the range we've given people is you should expect a S&P between 3,000 and 3,300 sometime in probably the first four months of the year. That's when we think the deceleration on the revisions on the earnings side will kind of reach its Wait, crescendo. I'm sorry to interrupt. 3,000 to 3,300 in the first four months of the year, in which case? In any case? That's the range. I mean, we can't be okay. that precise. Right, right. But still. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a big that's drop. That's a big drop. Correct. Yeah. Okay. And, and that will be driven really by the earnings revisions to the right. downside, which is the second half of our thesis for this year, which is the ice part of the fire and ice. So, so Mike, you mentioned that the average stock is doing better than the index. And yep. what have we seen? We saw the five largest stocks in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ all guide down for the current quarter, right? And so they've acted pretty poorly. It's Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla. So 
do you think there's risk the fact that, that the market rally has broadened out this time compared to the one in the summer, like you just mentioned, but this is not going to be a one-quarter phenomenon. You're just saying you're expecting revisions, downside revisions in, in estimates to speed up here. Does that really cause a flush in a way if the major names lead to the downside and then weak hands and some of that other breath starts coming out? We could get to your 3,300 pretty quickly in the new year. That's right. I mean, look, we think most of the damage will happen in these bigger companies, not just tech, by the way. It could be consumer. It could be industrial. You know, remember, when, when those stocks had a tough time in October, the money went into these other areas. So part of that, you know, rally has been driven just by repositioning from the money moving. That doesn't mean it's safe. OK, so I want to be perfectly clear. We're still pretty bearish on the next six months. It's our job to call these tactical rallies. We got this one right. We don't always do, do that. Um, I still think this tactical rally has legs into year end, notwithstanding all the noise we're going to get in the next two weeks, simply because of the liquidity at year end and people chasing. And, and we have to deal with that. So this is not a time to sell everything and you know, run for the hills, because that's probably not until the earnings come down in January, February. Well, it's interesting. So, but you do seem like you're saying by March or April or May of next year, the bottom is in. I think and, so. And, yeah. and what tells you the bottom is in? Is it the revision story or is it really the combination of the Fed has signaled? So there's, there's really two things, Tim. I mean, I think you have to really take a view on. The first is, okay, what, you know, first, do, are we going to get those revisions? Are you going to get price to give you a fat pitch? Because that's the mm-hmm. one thing that hasn't happened yet this year. Even though June, you know, prices got low and October they got low. The equity risk premium never really yeah. came in, right? It was all about rates. Mm-hmm. Now you need the equity risk premium to kind of blow out to tell you that there's a recession risk or a real earnings you know, degradation. But to get bullish, you then have to take a view, okay, does, are we in a 70s stagflation type scenario, which you're not going to get bullish, or are you in the 1940s boom-bust scenario that we've been kind of talking about where there's a bust next year in earnings, but then 24, there's actually a reacceleration in earnings. Okay, and that's our core view. So the market will figure that out, we think, sometime in the spring, maybe you know, early summer, and there'll be a good second half. Mike, thank you for coming by. Good you to bet. see you. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Uh, Grasso, you're, you're with Mike Wilson in terms of the call for a, a face ripping, that's your term. You're in rally, um, but how about for next year? Yeah, so, so I do, I, I'm on the same page with him. I think you're gonna get that tactical rally going into year end. And I do believe the market will bottom after the first quarter because the Fed most likely, history has shown that after they start on a rate rising period, they start to cut. And that coincides with probably mid-year. So first quarter, bottom, market rallies from there. I mean, Mike's calls much more tactical than what we typically get from an mm. equity strategist, for sure. It's, it's the greatest trading market of all time, though, as we've yeah. said. And, and, and good for him, because he's called a lot of these turns. And, and a lot of them have been based upon extreme sentiment, extreme moves. But the thing he's saying that's different here is, is that the equity uh, downgrades and revisions are going to truly give the market a chance to estimate where these companies have gone bad. Yeah, and we haven't seen the beginning. I mean, we've just seen the beginning. We're yeah. not going to see the worst of it till next year. Yeah, no, and I think it makes sense. If you think of the, I, I think in the post-war period, the average decline, the average bear market lasts about a year. You know, it goes down about 30, 35% or something like that. So the way Mike's seeing is that once we get to the meat of the downside revisions, 2023 estimates come down, the companies guide down, sentiment is downright horrible. It feels kind of scary when you're going to have the 10-year yield likely going down at the same time the stock market is making new lows. That at some point, it's probably down in that 30 
3,300, 3,400 range, round tripping the entire move to the pre-pandemic highs in the S&P 500, where it's probably close to a bottom. Because I don't think any of us are sitting on the table here and think that we are on a 2008 or a 2001 sort of moment here. We just don't have the leverage in the system. They just don't have the sort of risk unless there's something totally wacky that happens well, geopolitically. Well, the, the cycles, I think, move faster. So he, ta- yeah. he was talking yeah. about stagflation and where we were in the 70s. I think the, the, the velocity of markets mm-hmm. is so different today, but the proliferation of information, the efficiency yeah. of markets, and I, I think this is moving faster, even though this is the kind of an inflation bear market tends to play out significantly longer than a traditional bear market. We got some breaking news here on Horizon Therapeutics. Shares jumping. As a biotech company says, it's exploring a potential sale. Bertha Coombs has got all the details. Bertha. That's right, Melissa. The company uh, acknowledging that it has been in what it calls highly preliminary discussions with three big pharma players, Amgen, Janssen Global, and Sanofi, about a potential takeover. Now, because they are headquartered in Dublin under Irish takeover rules, the companies will have to disclose whether they want to pursue a deal by January 10th, 5 p.m. New York time. So that sets the clock running. Potentially, there could be a deal before. Potentially, there could be nothing. The company says at this point they can't guarantee there will be a deal. Nonetheless, this is the company that makes the drug called Tepeza to treat things like uh, thyroid eye disease, a number of these kind of uh, rare disease or chronic disease uh, treatments that they are involved in the stock there. You can see a better than 30 percent. And it already had a pretty good November, Melissa. This puts its market cap, if it were to open in this range, somewhere in the range of uh, more than uh, 22 billion. Yep. Bertha, thank you. Bertha Coombs. So uh, we haven't talked about this in, in a little bit, but the notion that biotech companies are flush with cash. What do they do with cash? They make a huge acquisition. And then what happens? They hang themselves mm-hmm. um, figuratively <laughs> with the acquisition. Is that, I mean, if, Biogen, if Amgen says that it's interested, Guy, is that what's happening? It's $25 billion deal, probably. Deal. It's, that's a significant deal. That would, listen, again, I, I can't speak to the integration or what the overlaps are. And I'll say this. The knee-jerk in Amgen would be to sell it off probably to the tune of 10 to 15 percent. And that's going to be an opportunity. But I don't, love, I don't love Amgen pursuing this. Maybe for others it makes sense. I think Amgen's got the pipeline where they can do it on their own. Well, I don't it, see much of a reaction, by the way, in Amgen shares right now. Well, no, but Amgen has had a major reaction over the last couple of months. Stocks, yeah. stocks up almost 30 percent, and year over year, it's up you know, over 40. So uh, the move in the biotech sector, as we just pointed out, these are these are companies that are very defensive in this environment until they make a bad acquisition. Not implying this has to be. I'll let people uh, in the pharma space opine them on that. But but think about Gilead. I mean, think about all the moments that they've had their stock positioned for that great oncology acquisition that knocked the stock down for for years, and that's the frustrating part of the IBB. All right, coming up, rough tracks, a crippling rail strike threatening to impact nearly all parts of the economy. What Congress is doing to prevent it ahead. But first, iPhone anxiety, a top Apple analyst warning of some major production worries out of China. The details behind that call when Fast Money returns back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com.
Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Apple shares falling more than 2% today as iPhone production worries mount in China. Top Apple watcher Ming-Chi Kuo tweeting today that his firm expects Q4 deliveries of the iPhone 14 Pro and Pro Max to come in between 15 and 20 million units lower than expected. Decline coming as labor protests at the Zhengzhou plant escalate. Um, and the protests at the Zhengzhou plant aren't just about COVID lockdowns. They're also about wage disputes, uh, Grasso. So it's not necessarily, you know, it doesn't necessarily follow that COVID lockdowns get eased and everything's fine and good in, in the plant. Yeah, it seems like Apple has nothing but headwinds, whether it's Musk or whether it's production issues. But once again, this, this is not something that the consumer is saying we don't want the phones. Consumers saying we want too many of the phones and Apple can't produce them. So you might have a hiccup like you're having in the stock right now, but ultimately, uh, as it always seems to happen with Apple, it's always a buying opportunity. Unfortunately, the stability or or the uh, floor in the stock is a little bit lower than where we are right now to the tune of probably another eight to ten dollars. So no one's rushing out to buy Apple, nor do I think they should. But ultimately, I think it's a buying opportunity for a great name. Do you think that Musk is, uh, I'm asking maybe the wrong person, do you yeah, think we Musk know the is really here. a problem for Apple in terms of him questioning the practices of the App Store? No, I think Apple's a huge problem for him with Twitter. I, I mean, I, again, you know, I mean, listen, you know, this is going to be my New Year's resolution. I'm going to stop with Musk because I think the yeah. Twitter stuff is not particularly important. I think it's just denigrating what, what, what probably any good things that have happened over there at Tesla. Okay, going back to Apple for a second. I, I, again, I don't think it's a big deal for Apple one way or another if that Twitter app is not in the um, iOS store. Um, but I will say this, is that if you look at this current quarter, the December quarter, you know, expectations, consensus is for down 4% um, year over year in EPS. Last year, they did 25% growth. The year before, they had 35%. So when you think about expectations are actually kind of getting low, I just don't think there's a floor in the stock. I think there's some technical support down another 10 or $15 or so. But this is still massively outperformed all of its major tech peers from, let's say, you know, if you want to go back two years to when we got the vaccines announced in November of 2020. But, it, but it's underperformed. It's underperformed the market since that spike on yeah. earnings. And maybe you can say, well, it was an unnatural spike. But it's down 10 percent to the S&P yeah. um, in that time. It never got above uh, the 200 or above. It's still below the 50. Uh, and I'll just say this. I, I don't think that the Elon news is significant, but but you can't tell me that there aren't a lot of people in a lot of places. And I love Apple as a company. Uh, I don't love the stock right now. It's kind of the opposite of what Guy says about Facebook or Meta. Uh, but you can't tell me that Apple hasn't been pushing around the world for a long time. 
and I think we're going to look back on this period, and I'm not sure there's going to be an antitrust thing coming up tomorrow, but the, the issues that, that Elon is going to broadcast as much as possible are issues we've heard from many different corners of the world. Different I mean, companies. geographically, I mean, companies, I mean, the App Store. This is a company that dominates, and, and I think Apple pushes the world around, and I think it's one of the reasons why the company's been so successful. Apple made an all-time high late December, early January. Think about it. It's almost a year wow. that it made its all-time high, and here we are now. I think that 130 level that we saw in June is in the crosshairs. And may I ask just one thing of the panel? Steve, obviously, if he hears me, is included Everybody's in this. Everybody's asking questions tonight. <laughs> this is what's good. So I started. Go I'm ahead. sorry, Melissa. Go I started no, but this. It's still November last I looked. The penultimate day of November. Can yes. we wait for the New Year's resolutions until sometime sorry. the last no, week of know, December? I so I'm just throwing it out there. You shouldn't wait till New Year's. You can make a resolution at any time. Today can be the day that you make a resolution and make a change Fair. in your life. Fair. It doesn't wow. Wow. To do with the calendar. That's deep. I mean, this Isn't is a it? special no. fast money. So, so can I, but can I just make one point about that resolution? Yes, I think what's really clear is that Elon Musk is coming unwound before our very eyes. So I don't think it takes much. You don't have to be a pundit on TV to keep pointing it out every day. That's my main point. The one thing I want to say about Tim Cook, what you're saying about Apple pushing the, the, the world around, let me tell you something. Like, think about this. There's hundreds of thousands of Chinese people who are living under an authoritarian regime who are also working in these Foxconn Factories that are making these iPhones, and they are jump, they were jumping out of buildings years ago. They're rioting right now. At some point, that's going to be the reckoning. Like, it's going to be the reckoning. Why does Tim Cook, why does he get to walk this very fine line with, you know, President Xi and the Chinese right. Communist Party and make these phones? You know what I mean? They have a well, you're, and you're hitting, you're hitting on something. I mean, Apple's reliance on China right now on demand and supply is yeah. something like, I don't think we've ever seen it. And, and, and I, I, I would be worried. Do you really want to hitch yourself to that wagon right now? I don't know. I mean, well, you can make an argument China's about to bust out. I mean, this whole COVID madness is something that will end. And the fact that we trade these headlines every single day is also madness to me. Um, they're going to reopen. They have to reopen. I mean, I know that ESG is falling out of favor quickly at this point. But still, I mean, if you are an ESG investor, you have to wonder about Apple, its commitment yes. to ESG, if it is standing by production at these factories. We've brought that point up many times. It clearly is not manifested at all in terms of the stock or the investment community. But to Tim's point, when you're so reliant on something that could turn so quickly, yeah. I mean, that's a problem. And we've pointed out a number of again times. Again and again, they're one lockdown yeah. away from missing production the targets. Tail Here risk, we are. That's your tail risk for Apple. That makes it $115, $120. And stock. that delayed phone right now might be a phone that's not purchased. I, 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 it I feels a little so bit too. different than a Ford. I, I, I know it's crazy, but I, I, I feel like the way the consumer, except for Dan. This is an iPhone 12. Uh, this is an iPhone 12. So I downgraded from a 14. I'm just telling you, they're the you most, iter they're the most iterative exactly. phones. Yeah. They're the most iterative phones. And so, you know, Karen was saying last night, delayed or deleted or denied or, or, denied or whatever. I think they're going to be denied. In a bad economy, it might be denied. Yeah. But anyway, um, a lot more Fast Money to come. Here's what's coming up next. A railroad strike looming ahead. The latest details out of Washington and the ripple effects they could have on the economy and the markets. Plus, a semi comeback? Could chips flip after a rough year for the tech space? The names with the most potential heading into the new year. And the ones to avoid. You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are watching the latest developments on negotiations to avoid a potential rail strike. The House set to vote on a tentative contract deal tomorrow morning. Kayla Tausche has got the details. Kayla. Well, Melissa, you said it. The House will vote as soon as tomorrow morning, according to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. And Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said the Senate would pass it quickly after that, forcing four unions to accept the terms of a tentative White House broker deal that they had already rejected. President Biden today said he called on Congress to force the deal because the threat of a strike is putting the economy at risk. Specifically, the White House has suggested a strike could upend $2 billion of daily trade and put 765,000 American jobs on the line. For one industry, chipmakers have already begun diverting rail shipments to trucks. But not all lawmakers are on board with this plan. Republicans Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz said they would not vote to reject the demands of workers. And progressive Senator Bernie Sanders said he'd, uh, he'd be a no and that he would be trying to improve the deal with more paid sick leave. That's the major sticking point. The deal reached in September provides just one day of paid leave. Unions had sought 15. That's why groups representing half of rail workers say quality of life issues still need to be addressed. Now, several unions have been able to negotiate side deals with some new bespoke elements sought by their members, like, for instance, solo lodging accommodations on the road. But getting all 12 groups on board by December 9th is proving to be a tall order. Melissa? So I thought the president, Kayla, was going to try and do something or that he might have emergency powers. Well, it depends on which part of this process you're talking about, Melissa, because uh, the president had appointed a presidential emergency board back in the summer. They're the group that uh, essentially put together this third party deal that proved to be the starting point for those late night negotiations in September, where President Biden made the final phone call that essentially pushed the groups toward that tentative deal. The problem is rank and file workers don't like it. And now it's up to Congress under the Railway Labor Act. Congress can either force the parties to accept the deal, they can delay the strike deadline and draw talks out even further, or appoint their own independent arbitrator. They're going with option one, Melissa, but we'll see how that pans out. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tausche. Um, Guy, transports here. Yeah, if this were to, I don't think it will happen. It'll be averted somehow. Yeah. Core heads will prevail. But if it were to happen, I mean, the market goes down probably three and a half, four percent that day. It will be figured out. Transports here, the rails have traded actually okay if you look at them. I mean, I think to me, CSX is probably the most interesting one in the group, but you look at FedEx and UPS, that's a tale of two cities without question. UPS has proven to be the better company, I think, in this environment still is. UPS, I think, is a lot less exposure to a rail strike than, than many. And I actually think, you know, the stock rallied a little bit on some of that, even just relative value. I look at CSX, I think you can't really invest in the rails till we get a better handle on where they are on these peak yields with coal and a lot of these inputs that I, I just don't think are going to hold. I think if you look at the chart, uh, you had a nice rally back also on at least better labor costs. Um, I don't think the demand side is, is a great place to be right now. Coming up, a stock picker's market for semis. A top chip analyst weighs in on where chips could be heading from here. That interview in just moments. And we're all over the action in CrowdStrike and NetApp. Shares of both stocks dropping hard after those names reported results. We're bringing the details from the quarters. And before you had to break, take a look at the Capitol Hill Christmas tree. It was lit just moments ago. There it is. There it is. Nice. Behold. Beautiful. Stick around. More Fast Money in two. Beautiful. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. Credit Suisse holding its annual tech conference this week. Micron, NVIDIA, NXP, and On Semiconductor among the big chip names presenting. And options traders are betting that at least one of these names will fail to make a good impression. Mike Coe is here with the action. Mike, what'd you see? Yeah, we were taking a look at Micron Technology, which was the third busiest semiconductor name among the single stocks. And we did see bearish bets outpacing bullish bets. The largest of these was a big purchase of January puts. We saw a buyer pay $1.85 for 2008 of the January 50 puts. Buyers of those puts are obviously betting that Micron could trade lower. All right, uh, Mike, thanks for that. For more on the chip trade, let's bring in Stacey Raskin. He's a senior U.S. semiconductor analyst and managing director at Bernstein. Uh, Stacey, are we expecting companies to reset expectations tomorrow? Um, well, some of them report were, were there today, and I don't think we saw too much resetting mm-hmm. expectations today. Most of them sounded pretty consistent, and especially the ones that are exposed more to the analog space, I think the industrial and the auto, most of them at this point still sound pretty good. I'd say that's where the broader controversy is, by the way. Like investors, I think, are broadly expecting next year to be a downturn. We've seen some end markets already roll, uh, consumer focused stuff, PCs, smartphones, graphics cards, that sort of stuff. It's already rolled. Other markets like industrial and auto are still more broadly holding up. And so people are wondering, you know, first in, first out is the ones that haven't uh, taken the hit yet. Are they, ne- are they next? Uh, and do we see that going into next year? Is that what you're expecting, that there will be a broader reset of the of the sector to come? Well, I, I, we've already seen some of it, right? So right. probably, right? Um, I've been nervous uh, on some of these other more diversified end markets, industrial and auto, for a while. Um, demand has still been very strong. Mm-hmm. Supply has been tight. Lead times, the time it takes customers to get their products have been stretching out um, because of these supply shortages. I've been worried about stockpiling and double ordering. Like there, there's a phenomenon that happens when customers can't get the stuff that they want in an appropriate time frame is they tend to order more. It's the toilet paper situation, you know, from, from 2020. Uh, it, it happens all over the place. Um, and I do think if you look at the, the trajectory of some of the semiconductor markets versus the trajectory of the end markets that they go into, I do think that there is a burgeoning discrepancy in some of these end markets, some like like some of the ones that have been holding up very strongly, like auto and industrial. And I, I do worry. Now, when that cracks, I don't know. Like, we started making this call a year ago. And at that point, I thought we maybe had a quarter or two. Mm-hmm. It's been four or five quarters. And, and I'd say from a fundamental standpoint, numbers have still held up quite well. Although from a stock standpoint, it seems like in, investors have been getting more and more worried. The better the numbers get, the more worried they are that there's something bad on the other side. Yeah. So, Stacey, talk to us. You just mentioned industrial and auto a, a couple times there. If you look at the Texas Instruments, for instance, expected to have, you know, double digit earnings and sales growth this year. And the stock is only down about six percent of the year. But it trades at a big premium to many of its peers. And then you look at next year's expectations and expected to be down earnings and sales high single digits, about 10 percent, but trades at about 22 times. How do you square that sort of outperformance this year, low expectations? expectations next year, but fat valuation. Well, I mean, th- this is how semiconductors trade. They're anticipatory, right? So quite often what you see as numbers are going up and up and up as the multiples come down and, and vice versa. And we're in an environment right now where I think investors actually want to see cuts. They want to see numbers come down. They want to know that those estimates have bottomed so they can actually feel more comfortable buying the stock. And TI actually did cut. So if, if, if you go back to some of these other end markets, Everybody's saying auto is still resilient, but TI is one of the few companies that actually has said that they're seeing issues, at least in industrial. 
They've actually guided down. They guided next quarter down, I can't remember, 12%, 12%, 13% sequentially, which is low relative to what you would typically see seasonally in that quarter. Because of that, numbers going forward have been reset as well, and it actually makes investors more comfortable buying, and you would tend to put a higher multiple on a on a more trophy kind of earnings. Mm-hmm. TI in general, though, does tend to get a premium. It's a very well-respected company. They've got a great long-term investor base who tend to hold the stock through thick and thin. So the multiple for them tends to be supported regardless, though. Stacey, thanks so much for joining us. Nice to see you. Oh, you bet. Anytime. Stacey Raskin. All right. What Stacey likes, AMD, NVIDIA, and Qualcomm. Do you like those guys? NVIDIA is rallied now 60-ish, 65% since the October. 65%. That's not insignificant. And it's still... 50% 50% lower than where it was a year from now. That's math. I like, took that in school one day. At these levels, I think you sell NVIDIA. I think this is a rally you got to fade. So I love the company. don't like the stock here. Steve? Yeah, all the semiconductors are in a declining trend line going back to the late 2021. With the exception of Qualcomm, that underperformed, then broke out of the declining trend line. But to Dan's point, Texas Instruments looks like the best stock in the space right now currently, but that's still in a declining trend line. I, this is something where, where Stacy's right. You, you went from a drought of chips to a flood of chips, and there was a lot of overordering, and we have not got through that supply, and there's gonna be a recession. I agree with Guy, I think you gotta sell these, uh, their peaks and valleys, and you gotta sell these peaks in the semiconductors. All right, coming up, the World Cup may be in full swing, but we just can't get off the baseball diamond. Some key movers in today's session. Nice. How should we play the names? We're breaking it down in our trader triple play straight ahead. But first, we got some after-hours action in a couple of tech stocks. CrowdStrike and NetApp both dropping sharply after results. The details from the quarters when Fast Money returns. Mark your calendars for the next big interview from CNBC Pro Week. Brian Sullivan's talking to billionaire investor Leon Cooperman tomorrow, 3 p.m. Eastern Time. Scan the QR code on your screen to register. We've got earnings alerts on a couple of tech names. CrowdStrike shares sinking um, after the cybersecurity company gave disappointing revenue guidance for the current quarter. That stock is down 18 percent. And NetApp shares are down 11 percent on a week's sales outlook. Christina Partsonovlis has got the details on both those stocks. Christina. Well, two major reasons for that CrowdStrike weakness is next quarter's weaker revenue guidance and weaker than expected annual reoccurring revenue. So that's pretty much the bread and butter from so many of these cloud names. CEO George Kurtz blaming, quote, elongated sales cycles with smaller customers and some larger customers pursuing these multi-phase subscription start dates, a.k.a. they're delaying their purchases. Kurtz warning this slowdown will persist into Q4, something we've already heard from Datadog and Confluent, but promising on the earnings call, quote, the vast majority of these deals are not lost, just delayed. Sticking with cloud, NetApp shares also tumbling down 11% after a mixed quarter and weak guidance for fiscal Q3 and its full year. And uh, it's something we've heard or I heard on the airways not too long ago, Jim Cramer saying enterprise tech spending weakness could be the eye of the storm, especially since many of these software as a service firms have never experienced a recession. And we're seeing it a CrowdStrike. It was uh, formed in what, 2011, not too long ago? Yep. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsnevelis. I mean, that's a question. If the economy continues to weaken, there are continued layoffs. Do you need to spend as much on enterprise software? 
Tim. Well, the sense was that you had to. Uh, and we live in a world where they can't cut here. They can mm-hmm. cut in other places. And I still kind of believe that. And if you look at the growth that they're getting, uh, you know, you're, you're, you're at 50 percent bookings growth year over year. And I, I still think that that uh, warrants a higher multiple. In this environment, we know what high multiple stocks do. This was a disappointment. This was a very conservative guide for a company that I think has been outperforming their peers. CrowdStrike still trades. Even with the sell-off, it's probably 10 times revenue, which is expensive. But the second... Full quarter guidance, you can wrap your head around. The problem is the second quarter guidance and how do you get to the full year. So people are selling first, asking questions later. It's going to find a home. I'm trying to figure out what the right level is. I'm going back all the way to 2019 high, and that's about 98 bucks or so. That should be support. Wow. And, you know, given this quarter and given the way people sell first, ask questions later, that might be the level. Dan? Yeah, I mean, we've seen this before. I mean, this is like smacks of 2001, and and this is really, it's just starting to hear the company's guide down. That's the most important part. Here's the stock down 65% from its all-time highs in 2020, and Guy just said the stock's trading about 10 times sales right now. It's trading at 60 times sales. It had nearly a $100 billion market cap, and, you know, again, that's insanity. That's on investors, and just like it overshot to the upside, this stock is going to overshoot to the downside, and it's going to trade at a multiple of sales probably similar to its pre-pandemic levels, which is a good old fat hat size guy. Mm. What are you, seven and three eighths? Seven and three like eighths. Oh, I thought if it was bigger. Really? That's small? Yeah. I thought right. yeah, some was a wise guy. I had you okay. for a bigger head. I'm sure. Double digits. Yeah, no, it's fine. And there's nothing wrong head. with that guy. By the way, that's that's probably but a compliment a hat somehow. Size me, for, for people who might not understand yeah, that. Yeah, high single digits. High single digits. Maybe eight and a quarter if it's guy. Three eighths is three, seven, five if you're playing the home game. I can do the whole thing. Has it always been that size? My head? No, it's probably born with a smaller head. Tim. Shrinkage over top I don't, of I age just, or something? I don't know. Maybe, I think your maybe ears grow <laughs> constantly. And your nose. Pardon me? Let's, let's measure let's today. Stop, let's stop and then we'll measure in a year. Next year. There's, there's we're still here. A few different. Coming up, everyone's talking about soccer, but we, we're talking about head sizes. Um, we can't get over baseball. Who cares if it's off season? A trader triple play is on deck. Three sectors seeing big moves today and how to play them. Don't go anywhere. Fast money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Time for a trader triple play. Big moves in three sectors today. Up first, shares of Boeing taking off up 2%. Morgan Stanley reiterating the stock as an overweight, saying it's through the worst of its problems and the commercial business should offset defense risks. Um, Tim, recently you've called this the best-looking chart in the Dow. In the Dow. Uh, yeah, I, I think it is, and I think the fundamentals support the chart. You have a case here where part of their, their argument, I agree with this, this is the return of free cash flow at, at, at Boeing after, uh, they've said $21 billion. I, I've seen numbers that are greater than that over the last three years. It's a case where this was doing 25 to 30 bucks a share in free cash flow in its heyday. I think we're getting back there, but it's a duopoly, folks. The airplane cycle, air, aircraft are scarce. There are, there are order books that are going to grow, uh, and I think the airlines are going higher, too. All right, next up, casinos hitting the jackpot today. Shares of Malco, Las Vegas Sands, Wynn, and MGM rallying for a second day after the Macau government renewed their licenses to operate there for another 10 years. Guy. J.P. Morgan upgraded win yesterday. I think $91 price target, probably still too cheap, coming off a pretty solid quarter in early November. I think people are coming to the realization that regardless of what's going on with China, lockdown, zero COVID, these casino stocks are still cheap. So I still think it goes higher from here, Melms. China stocks more broadly, though, Tim, rallied today. China stocks, K-Web's been rallying. K-Web rallied yesterday when there's protests. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, my view on EM is that it's going to continue to go higher. I just want, and, and on the casinos, they lost two-thirds of their multiple and a 
lot of that were China license renewals, at least if you look at wind and you look at LVSNs. I think you get long casinos. They're only just breaking out. They're still down two-thirds from where they were. Yeah. Grasso, your, your thoughts on China? Yeah, I mean, this is just the headwind du jour, right? So, it, but I would say that we're, we have to be closer to the bottom than, uh, than, we, than most people want to admit. And yes, they can, with a flick of a switch, they could say zero, zero COVID policy is off the table, and then everything uh, moves higher <laughs> that's China-related. But, but I would say that the casinos are showing us in the last month, they've moved higher aggressively Las Vegas Sands looks like the winner in the group to me. I'd probably stay there. All right. Finally, home builders finishing higher today. The XHB Home Builders ETF gaining more than a half percent uh, in today's session. While the group has been hammered this year, it's been staging a comeback this month as mortgage rates uh, pull back. So a little bit of a relief for the home buyer here. Steve, um, you alerted us to this move here that you're watching. Yeah, it, it appears to me it's hard to fathom that you want to be buying uh, houses right now or housing stocks in the face of a recession, in the face of rising rates. And even the sentiment around the, the builders themselves is pretty negative. And, and 60% of them are saying that they have to offer incentives to buy down the rate of the mortgage for the potential buyers to make it look attractive. Transactions are going lower. Stocks are going lower. Mortgage rates are moving higher, but a lot of these stocks seem to be counterintuitively making a rounded bottom. I don't think we've seen the bottom yet, but it appears that you can buy them for a short-term rally. Well, they always look ahead, right? There's, a, there's still a supply issue in housing, regardless of what mortgage rates are doing, Tim. I think that's the affordability, by the way. It is the trader triple play. Verlander, Mets, Dodgers, or Yanks. Where's he signed? Yanks. Nice call. Yeah, I mean, he's not going to play for the Mets. By the way, I'm going to say this at, at the risk of infuriating a lot of people <laughs> out on. there. No, I'm going to say it. All right. Playing for the Mets, Tim, uh, uh, is not the same you, as playing in New you York know what? City. Let's take this outside. We've oh, got we two minutes to get to off this that. show, Back and then I'll you, see you out in Times um, Square. I was asking about home builders. Timothy. Oh. Oh. So I, I think home builders are trapped in a range here. I think you have a case here where the valuation is actually pretty interesting. If you look at PHM, uh, I, I get the sense here. Velocity in the housing market is ground to a halt and stays there. Bye. Comes down to interest rates. Ten-year yields have gone from 4.3. They're going to 3.5%, in my opinion. Dan's been right on this trade. It's as simplistic as that, in my view. If you think rates are going lower, I think the home builders go higher, which I do. Why you, you me another? I, no, I thought what? that you were going to be off topic on something else. Uh, no, you asked me a about. specific question. You want to get into the Verlander debate. He's not pitching for the. He's not playing for the Mets. How about USA Soccer? By How about the way? it? How I'm about going it? Awesome. Up next, final trades. <laughs> Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Steve Grasso. General Mills has been an outperformer this year. It's up 23% year-to-date. And inside General Mills, the pet segment has been up, uh, outperforming to an unbelievable level. General Mills, bye. Tim Seymour. Well, if China has bottomed, you certainly have a major, major tailwind to emerging market investing. I also think the dollar has peaked. Doesn't mean it has to go significantly lower in a, in a short amount of time. EM, double bottom at 34. I think you stay along this trade. Dan Nathan? Yeah, Semi's had a good rally led by names like NVIDIA. Guy said to sell him. I think he sell the SMH. The rich get richer, Mel. What do you think of the Strohs signing a Brayu? That's a big deal for He's them, right? He's past his prime. I don't even he know He was the, the MVP of the league two years 35. ago, Tim. He's 35. 
Win Resorts. That's a W in the Dawn Trade, Mel. It is. What are yeah. the other two? Comp- what are the other components? Airbnb, Neo, and Disney. No oh, bueno. That was your pick for next no bueno. year. Last We're going to have to get new picks yeah. for the next year. Almost seeing time. how all the old picks did so well. All right. Thanks for watching. <laughs> it was a tough year. Thanks for watching Fast Money. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right about now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.